This is an ABC podcast. Annette Trevitt began a strange chapter of her life a few years ago in a remote mining town in Western Australia. Her dad, John, had moved to Caratha in the 1970s, fleeing bankruptcy. He'd also left behind a wife and three children, thousands of kilometres away in New South Wales. Annette was seven years old when her dad left, and from that point on, she only ever saw him at Christmas. Meanwhile, in the Pilbara, John began his reinvention. He built a small real estate empire, amassing seven properties and riding the mining boom. But eventually, the boom went bust, and John's properties were worth very little. When he died suddenly, Annette, as his eldest child, was tasked with unpicking the detritus of her dad's life. It was a two-year-long struggle which saw Annette battling bureaucracy and bankers in a bid to sort through the mess and restore order. At the same time, she was sifting through some strange and powerful memories of her dad. She's written a book about it all called I Had a Father in Caratha. Hi, Annette. Hello, and thank you for having me. Our pleasure. What do you know about your dad, John's early life? Annette, where, where did he grow up? Uh, he, he grew up in Urala, which is in the northern part of New South Wales, up in the Tablelands. And he had a brother and a sister, but he was the eldest. And he lived on a farm. My grandmother's family also come from up there, so there's a lot of family connection up there. And what did he wanted to do after school, do you know? Uh, he always said he wanted to be a vet, but he left school. He finished his final year when he was only just turned 16. So his father said he didn't want him to go down to Sydney to be on his own. So he stayed in Urala and built up a piggery. Built up a piggery. Was that the kind of farming that his family had been involved in? No, no, not at all. I think it was a new adventure. And how did he meet your mum? How young were they when they got together? Oh, they were young. Well, I think they were really, really young. They were probably in their 20, you know, 20, 21. And how soon after that did they have kids? My dad was 24 and mum was 23 when they had me. And I have two younger brothers. So by the time my dad was 27, he had three kids and a farm to run. And a farm to run. What, what memories do you have of spending time with him when you were small? Um, I don't really have, for some strange reason, very many memories of my dad during those those times. But my dad used to go on a lot of pig runs, you know, to sale yards, and I used to go with him in this big, rattly, drafty truck. And I do remember the truck, but I don't remember the trips to the to the sale yards. But my grandmother and my mother said that I always insisted on going. So I always kind of found that strange that I would insist on going because they were... I can imagine my father would have just left me waiting in the truck while he was doing the business. So it was a sort of a strange thing that I, I would do. Maybe it was one-on-one -on -one time with a parent. That can be pretty precious. Maybe, but there is a part of me that thinks perhaps I might have been aware that things weren't great because I, I feel like sometimes I might have gone with him just to get him home, <laughs> to mm. make sure he came home. Well, when you were seven, he didn't come home. How did you find out that your dad had left? I found out through a kid at school, actually. I found out through a kid at school that we had lost everything. And then when I asked my mother, she told me that was right. And so we had to keep it all a secret because my father went bankrupt and my mother didn't know. So she only found out when she went to dad's sock drawer 
and there are a whole lot of bills and invoices rolled up in there. That's when she realised that they were going to repossess the house. So she went to the local branch manager and he was great. He really looked after her. So he gave us extra time to stay in the town. Yeah, he was just did the right thing, really. But had your dad already just cleared out, Annette? Yeah, he had cleared out. So he left one night. So we stayed in we stayed in the town for another three or four months, giving my mother the chance to sort of understand what was actually happening and what to do. My mother's very practical, very resourceful and very practical. So she obviously packed up the house in secret because the bank manager said that we could keep the family furniture. So we lost absolutely everything, but he allowed us to keep the furniture. So when we moved, my other grandmother came to pick my brothers and me up. And I do remember that leaving town. And I can remember it, it's in a way, one of my first earlier memories of the whole situation. And I remember crying, just thinking, well, where's dad? You know, how does he know where we are? Mm-hmm. How does he know where we're going? So it was, it was a difficult time. Could you say goodbye to people in the town or was it sort of like you were escaping? It was a little bit like we were escaping, although my mother said that the people in the town were very good to her in that small town. My mother's very social and, um, you know, very popular because she's, she gives a lot. And so I think people did want to look after her. I'm guessing it was pretty unusual at the time to have a family that had broken up. Oh, I had never heard of it. And so I, when we moved into the next town, I found it very shameful. I, I, I couldn't cope with it at all. And I always carried this thing that, you know, my dad didn't want me. So I was always telling everybody that he had died and very, very nervous, always on a hair trigger that someone was going to find out and, and confront me about it and say, oh, you know, but you're lying. No, it was a difficult time. It was very shameful. I, and I didn't really know very many... I think it was actually my first year of high school that I remember a girl came up to me and said, my parents are like yours. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And another friend had to say, separated. How did your mum support you? What was she doing for for work? Well, her parents built us a small house at the back of their place. And my mum worked as, uh, as an assistant, a teacher's assistant, in a school for intellectually handicapped kids. Often she would have them come and stay after school. And she also looked after other kids after school as well. So, yeah, there wasn't much money, but my dad did send money across to her. After your your dad left Annette, where did he head first? He hitchhiked down to Sydney and he uh, spent the first few nights in a park and then he got a job at the Mossman Pub. As a had three jobs there. He was a window cleaner. He was a barman and he was also the cleaner of the pub. And I guess he was trying to make money, trying to pay back the debts, but he was very heavily in debt. And then what drew him over to to Western Australia? I think um, a lot of things took him over there. Well, perhaps mainly um, making money. The mining boom had just kicked in, so it was back in 74 when he went over. And I'm not sure if he went over there for short-term, you know, short, short-term reasons of making money. But, wow, once he got there, he just fell in love with the place. And he was away from his troubles over east. And very quickly, he sort of got a nickname over there. He was called the professor or the prof. The prof? Why the prof? Oh, Dad liked to pontificate. <laughs> he, loved, he loved standing, you know. I mean, I can see him now just, you know, at the bar, holding foot. 
And, yeah, he, I guess that and that nickname, of course, he loved it. You know, he, he, he absolutely loved it. And I think once he got there and, you know, money was coming in and he had the had the nickname and he just started to fall in love with the place. He loved everything about it. Loved the the mining boom. He he loved it all. So he ended up living in Caratha. What's the story of of that town? It's right on the coast, isn't it? In in the Pilbara. Yeah, it's right on the coast. And if you go, you can't really go much further west. If you go much further west, you're in water. <laughs> so it's like he actually had to go as far away as he could from it all. Yeah, it's it's um. Well, when he went there, the town has just been established. It had only been going for about six years. It was to set up um, a regional centre and accommodation for Hammersley Iron Workers. And what work was he doing then? Was he working at the uh, at the mine? He was a roofer. He'd gone over and worked in Dampier for a little while as a brickies labourer, and then he set up a roofing business with uh, a friend. And, of course, there's a lot of construction all over the Pilbara. So he just went to all the towns all over the Pilbara putting on roofs. Port Hedland and Onslow, Newman, Tom Price, Panawanica, Parabadu. Yeah, they're great Parabadu. names, aren't they? Parabadu's <laughs> fantastic. That is a great name. And did you know much about what was going on with him? Did you have a sense of, of the life that he was building out there? No, not at all. To us, it was just like a frontier town on Mars. I mean, I remember he came back with some of the soil, that beautiful red soil. And I mean, it was just so alien to us kids. And it was hard to understand, you know, we knew he loved us, but it was very hard to understand how he could just keep leaving us. I think we all found that quite hard. Your mum had met someone else, uh, a man named Tim. What, What were your first impressions of him? What do you remember thinking of this new man in your mum's life? Oh, Tim. Tim was, um, Tim was a great guy. Tim, um, he was very different from my father. He was, he was an office worker and he was very, always, he had a British accent and he was always very neat. <laughs> and I can remember thinking he was the most growing up, growing up I knew because he lived in a motel. My mother worked, she did this for a little while as well. She worked as a motel cleaner and the owner's introduced them to each other. And we'd often go with my mother after dinner. We'd go down with her to see Tim and we'd <laughs> we'd always go for the dessert. It was a banana, you know, in a dish with, you know, sprinkled peanuts and a bit of whipped cream and it was just a bit of chocolate on top. It was just always such a treat. <laughs> so how often would you see your dad? You had told people that, that he wasn't around anymore, that he'd died, but how mm. often did you did you actually get to see him? Um, he came over every Christmas. He came over when it was really hot in Caratha. So he would come over and then he'd always go back for the cyclone season to be prepared for that. Sometimes he would drive across. In the later years he started to fly, but he always just would just turn up. So we got to see him once a year and during our sort of primary school years and early high school we'd just go on big trips, often just to state borders. So he'd drive all the way from yeah. the furthermost western point of WA to you on the east coast and then drive some more. Yeah, yeah. What, what would you do in those car trips, do you remember? How, how would you spend time together after having not seen each other the whole year? I, I think those car trips were sort of, they must have been hard for my father because, you know, for 11 years we were growing and changing and he, he just would turn up. And I think at sometimes he would be at quite a loss. So my dad's way of coping with things like that is to 
was at that stage and probably still could have been, you know, right up until we were adults, is to test our powers of observation. So he would, we'd be driving along and he would say things like, um, that house on the hill, how many lights were on? That, that car that went past, what did the number plate add up to? And, and um, would you be able to answer these kind of quizzes? No, we were hopeless. We were hopeless. And, of course, we were pitted against each other. So there'd be a lot of fights and bickering and a lot of tension. But he sort of didn't pick up that he was creating the tension. It was kind of astounding, really. And he would make a second guess us all the time. You know, How many times did that um, pedestrian crossing flash? You know, things like... So we were incredibly observant kids. We would notice everything. And I know even when I got into my 20s and would go on road trips with friends, they would always say, my God, what are you doing? Because I would just find everything. I would just notice everything. It's like he was training you to be a spy or something. Annette. I know, I know. A detective. That's it. I like to think of, I like to see myself as a bit of a detective. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, he may well not have known the answer. I suppose as a kid, you assume that if your dad's asking you a question, he knows the answer, but he mightn't have known how many lights were on in the house back there or what the numbers added up to. Oh, no, he would have known. He would have. He only would ask questions that he knew the answers to. It wasn't sort of like an open thing that we all talk and discuss and wonder. It was very much <laughs> second-guessing Dad. So I can't imagine they were very uh, restful trips for you. I mean, were you happy to spend the time with him? Well, I think, you know, I think we liked it. I mean, it was tense. I mean, I felt it was quite tense. I mean, it was always, you know, great to see him, but it, was, it wasn't easy. Mm. And then, of course, there were times when it was easy. I mean, he always wanted an ice cream and, you know, we were three little kids, so we couldn't wait to get our drumstick as well. So, and it often try and take us to good places for, um, I think when I was 12, he took us across to New Zealand for six weeks. And we went all over New Zealand and that was pretty good. But again, we got tested all the time in the car, in, in the camper van. <laughs> what were goodbyes like when it came for him to head back home to Karatha? Yeah, the goodbyes were hard. They were difficult. Um, I think one of the reasons they were difficult is because we weren't very um, emotionally sort of affectionate. So we'd all stand around quite shyly sort of looking at each other and yeah, they were they were difficult. They were very hard. And I do think in the early years it was very hard for us as little kids to understand. You know, we he never told us he loved us, of course, of that generation, but it was very hard to understand how he could keep leaving and what was being offered over there that we didn't we couldn't offer him. At thirteen you didn't go on the road trip. What happened instead? He had come across and of course not telling us quite when he was arriving, I had been booked into horse trail ride in in Newcastle with some family friends of my mum's. And I can remember my dad came there and he obviously knew we were there and he picked up my brothers, but I had booked in this trail ride. So in, my dad didn't ask me to come. I mean, but I can still remember the, the look on his face when I, it was becoming clear that I wasn't coming. And I, I do think had he asked me, I would have come, but I just... You know, we're all so shy with each other, really, and awkward. And I do remember, so he left, and I'll never forget the look on his face. I can still see it now. It was such sorrow. And that night at 13, I wet the bed, and I was in a room with two little kids. They were probably about five and six. And I, of course, got up the next day and told the parents that one of the kids had done it. And the kids were, they were young enough to have done it, but they were old enough to know they hadn't done it. 
So, I mean, obviously they all knew I was lying. And then they put the mattress out on the balcony on a main road. Oh. They lived on a main road. And they put the balcony up. It was only when I was really writing the book I realised I locked the two little kids out in the front yard because I think I imagined people driving past, <laughs> quizzing them each other. Who do you think wet the mattress? Which kid? And I didn't want, of course, myself to be seen. So I was always out the back or inside and hoping that they would understand that it was one of the kids and not me. Oh, I mean, it's crazy thinking, really. Crazy thinking that, that makes sense at 13, too, to be honest. Mm. Your dad's life was also changing in, in Karatha. What happened when you were 16 or so? When I, yeah, when I was 16, 17, he met um, Amanda. A friend of Amanda's introduced them. She said, oh, you've got to meet this guy, you've got to meet this guy at the pub, <laughs> meaning dad. And they met and, yeah, that was, they hit it off. And Amanda was only 19 at the time. He was 40. And they had a daughter, Nerida, who's my sister. She now lives in Melbourne. And, yeah, I was in Malaysia. I was an exchange student at that time. So I got the news through a letter. How did you react to hear that your dad at 40 was marrying a a woman, just a a young woman, just a few years older than you? Oh, they they, they didn't get married. Um, That didn't really worry me, actually. I didn't even sort of think about that. Perhaps I didn't quite know that she was that much younger. But uh, when Amanda was living with Dad in Carruthers, they were just living in a string of caravans. And then she had Nerida in Adelaide and went back up to Carruthers and they lived in a shared house with Hammondsley Iron Workers. But it was really untenable for Amanda. Mm. I mean, it's, it's hot. It's blokes world up there. And Dad wouldn't come home. You know, he'd go to the pub after work. So she said to him that, you know, she loved him, but... She would live anywhere in Australia with him, but not Karatha. And he, you know, he loved her too, but he said, I'm not leaving Karatha. So she went back down to Adelaide with Nerida. And then sort of a year or so later, Dad set up deep roots in Karatha. He bought his first house, which is the one he died in. So how old were you, Annette, when you finally visited this, this place that had captured your dad's heart? Uh, 21. And, and how did it look Do- through your eyes? Oh, I mean, I'd always seen it as a place of, you know, that sort of led to the separation of us. So I'd always been sort of a bit, you know, not not feeling great about the place. But I could, when I arrived in Karatha and Dad took me on lots of long drives, I could see the beauty of the place. I mean, the Pilbara is extraordinary. So, and the colours are just, oh, they're magnificent. So I did understand why the country attracted him. I could see the pull of it. But I still was sort of, you know, but Karatha, you know, Dad, you're up here, you're away from us. I mean, I still didn't really understand it. And it was quite an alien world to me, still the town. It was a new town. It was a blokey town. It was a remote town. So the town itself I didn't really understand, but I could see the pull of of the Pilbara. What about the gum trees up there in that part of the country? How did your dad feel about them? Oh, yeah, the, he, had, he, he himself had glorious, tall, tall gum trees, which he just adored. And a lot of people were worried about them because it's cyclone country, but that never worried dad. He just, he had to have his gum trees. You know, he loved his gum trees. <laughs> you mentioned the, the pub uh, that your dad would go to where he was known as the prof. Did he take you there? What was it like? So when I arrived from that first trip, I got off the bus. I had gone across the Nullarbor in a car with some two young guys I met at a youth hostel. And when I got to Perth, I caught the bus up to Karatha. 
So back then, you know, I didn't even feel I could even ask Dad for an airfare over there. So I did. I went overland all the way. So when I arrived, he was waiting for me, and he took me straight to the pub. At the time, it was called the uh, Walkabout. Yeah, and, and set, sort of set me up and introduced me to everyone, and that's when I started my life of drinking shandies. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like? What What was the atmosphere like at the Walkabout? Well. You know, he was very proud to have me there and his friends were very welcoming. I do remember that. And there was a lot of big man talk, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy, I mean, obviously I did love going up there to see the place. But it was, it was such an alien world. But I could sort of see even the way that back then there was still a lot of very diverse community up there, a lot of, a lot of runaway men, a lot of single men from all over the world were living up there. And my father did love that. You know, he loved having friends from Yugoslavia, from Germany. He, he loved all that. And I guess he could reinvent himself there. He, was, he could be a different kind of man than the one who'd left and gone bankrupt back east. Yeah, definitely. He definitely reinvented himself up there. And that was definitely the appeal of it, I think, was to be able to do that. It, it, just a whole new life. I mean, the pill was big and he was a part of something much bigger than him and he really loved that. Given that you were, by that stage, you know, in your 20s, Annette, did the two of you ever have a conversation about that decision he made back when you were a kid to, to just leave and, and leave your mum to sort out that bankruptcy and that mess? Uh, we never talked about it at all in my 20s. We only really started to talk about it in my 30s, early 30s. I moved from Sydney to Melbourne and that's when he would call me on a Sunday afternoon and I, would, I had just moved down there so I didn't have lots of friends down there at the time and he would call and I would pick up and we started to have quite deep conversations about, about Dad being a, a man who did leave his family and deserting us but he, he never really asked what it was like for us. He used to say things like, you know, his light went out when, you know, he lost his family, he lost his light. But he never really thought about whether my mother or us three kids, we lost our light. And I never sort of volunteered it either. I, I never volunteered what it was actually really like. How do you think it, it did shape you, like your relationships once you started, you know, seeing people when you became an adult, having a dad who left? Oh, I think we, I think I very much, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to speak on behalf of my, my my siblings, but for me, definitely, it had a huge effect on my relationships. I found it very hard to trust them, very hard to get out of them when I didn't want it. I did find find it very difficult, actually. What did you do about that, Anne? About the the anger and the hurt you must have felt. Well, when my father one time said to me in my 20s, oh, you're an angry young woman, but I wasn't angry with him. I'd never sort of really been angry with him, but anger did misfire everywhere else. But the anger was with myself for not being able to feel solid in relationships. I would, regardless of how I felt about the person, when they ended, I was just felt desolate. I absolutely felt I was out in the wild. And so I struggled a lot with that in my 30s, and I did go and see a psychiatrist and it was absolutely extraordinary to have someone just really listen to all those difficulties and not judge it. And that's including me. I would judge it too. I would judge my inability just to be on steady ground. I struggled with that as well. And so to not be judged, it was an extraordinary experience. So that certainly helped me 
be able to talk to my father about this stuff, never using, you know, jargonistic terms or anything, but it was able to give me the confidence to sort of even just say a few things, to even ask him a few questions. It certainly gave me the courage to do that. So what kind of relationship did you manage to create with your dad as an adult? Yeah, I mean, I always loved my father. I mean, a lot of people can get quite sort of angry because their parents aren't living up to their expectations. But for me, how dad was, was sort of how my father was. I didn't want him to or expect him to be any different. But the conversations certainly were really good. They were, you know, I remember one time he's, I said to him, but did you ever think about why my brothers and I always felt pressure to do so well at school? You know, we all the, so much work to impress you. And he paused for a long time and then he said, you should never feel you have to impress a deserter. So he did understand, he very much took responsibility for walking out. I mean, in a lot of ways, I felt like I had a convers—I could have conversations with my dad, which a lot of friends who had fathers around couldn't have, because I was able to be honest with him. He knew that I thought he was cowardly, for example, and he always used to, you know, I remember one time on, a, on the phone, he said to me, it sounds like someone thinks her old man could be braver. I said, yeah, I, I do think that. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Tell me about the the call that you took at work one day in, in 2016? Oh, I had a, I got the phone call from, I think it was Detective Sergeant Jack Russell, and he uh, rang up to say that there were some police outside my place and the radio's on, and but no one's home, no one's answering. And I said, oh, no, I have the radio on, you know, digiteur, <laughs> burglars, you know, robbers. And he said... Um, I said, well, well, what's it about? And he said, oh, there's been an incident in the street. Um, when are you home? And I said, I'll be home at six. And then I put the phone down and then it occurred to me, I meant Jack, Jack Russell. My God, that's a dog's, that's the name of a dog's breed. <laughs> did you think so you were being just, pranked? I mean, that's so weird. I did. I was just, oh, my God. So I, oh, my God, they're gonna, you know, I've just told them they've got five hours to take everything. <laughs> so I rang the police station and said, you know, I've just had this phone call and, you know, oh my God, and Jack, you know, a policeman called Jack Russell called me and now I'm freaking out and they go, oh, we'll just put you through to him. <laughs> <laughs> so he's actually a real person. <laughs> and I guess you weren't the first, I'm sure you weren't the first person to do a double take at Sergeant Jack Russell. So, yeah, so he said they wanted to come and talk to you. Were you thinking it might be to do with your dad? When had you last spoken with him? No, that had never actually occurred to me at all. And so when I got home, a friend rang in to ask if I wanted to go out to dinner, to her place, if my son and I wanted to go. And I said, you know, we can't. The police are coming over. There's an incident on the street they want to discuss. I don't know anything about it, but they still think I might have something to say. And then she paused for a while and she said, well, how's your dad? 
And then, of course, you know, the two police turning up, it's suddenly, oh, oh, my God. So I put the phone down and I tried to ring him on his landline, on his phone, mobile phone, and I was always going through to voicemail. And it really wasn't making much sense. And I was starting to get quite worried. And then I think about 40 minutes, I tried quite a few times. And then my brother sent an email to say, can you give me a call? I called him and he had told me what had happened. It was a terrible shock because we had seen him at Christmas. So this was in February. We had seen him at Christmas time, and he he perhaps wasn't a hundred percent. Didn't look a hundred percent, but he certainly didn't look like he was dying. Um, yeah, it was a hell of a shock. He was seventy-seven, which is young for my family. Uh, most of my family get through to their eighties, nineties. Did you get to speak to whoever had found your dad? Annette. Yeah, I did. I rang the Karatha police station and spoke to the young policewoman who had seen him. And she'd only just gone up there weeks earlier. It was her first sort of time up in the Pilbara. And she was she was gorgeous, really. I mean, she told me that he looked peaceful, which you know, I did find hard to believe. My dad was found um, on the floor of his bedroom between the bed and the window. So it's very hard to understand really what happened. But she said he looked peaceful, which I thought was very generous of her because I'm not 100% sure that would have been the case. He had died in a heat wave, so he was found on a Monday night, but we all think that perhaps he had died earlier. How had the police known to, to go and check that he was OK? Oh, my dad used to go to the Karatha Rec Club, um, Recreational Club, and he was there six nights a week. And he was seen there on the Friday night and then he wasn't there on the Saturday night. And then on the Monday night, the manager was a bit curious why Dad wasn't there. She knew he was still in town. So she sent one of Dad's friends over to to check, you know, to see what was going on. And Dad's ute was in the drive, but um, he didn't come to the door, so she called the police. So you and your siblings got this news really just out of the blue. Did you head out to Karatha straight away? Yeah, my two brothers uh, flew out from New South Wales and then my sister Nerida and I flew out from Melbourne a day later. And I guess you, you walked straight into having to plan a funeral. I mean, how did you go about that? Yeah, so we arrived and we had to, yeah, plan it all. So Dad's best friend told us of a funeral director down in Carnarvon, I think it was about 600 kilometres south, that he knew of and, and liked. So we contacted him and he came up and to do the funeral. And then we had drove around looking for a church and we ended up with the one right near my dad's place, an Anglican church. Why did you choose that spot? Um, well, we chose it because it, it was an Anglican church and that's what my father was. But it was a fantastic little church that looked like an abandoned 70s pizza place. <laughs> it was great. I mean, I loved it. And it had it surrounded by ghost ghost gums. And then we went in and it was cool and inviting and very welcoming. It's a beautiful little church. And did many people come to pay their respects to your dad? Yeah, it was great. I mean, the little church was full and which was really nice. A lot of people had come from south, from down south. So they'd driven, quite a few people had driven thousands of kilometres to come up. And that was, you know, it was really beautiful to have that happen. And did you speak there, Annette, at the funeral? Yeah, I, I, my brother got up and did an impromptu um, sort of tribute to Dad. It was really beautiful. He talked about Dad's ghost gums and how they were. They guided him to know where the house was from where we were staying, but how also they were like Dad because um, he felt that we could rely on Dad. I mean, Dad would have loved that analogy. <laughs> 
And I talked about the history of Dad. I talked about the troubles over East that drove him to the Pilbara and I talked about how my family, you know, the four siblings, we're all very much our father's children, (laughs) all that sort of forensic-like observation, very shared sense of humour, full head of hair, a (laughs) frown, you know. (laughs) And we all could mimic Dad beautifully. We We all understood Dad the same way. That's what I really like about my family is that my siblings and my mum and Amanda, Nerida's mum, we all had the same understanding of dad. Do you think it was a new side of him that the, that his mates in town and from that stage of his life saw? Like, were you were you voices from a, another side of his life, or were they were they more? Was it more integrated for him than that? I think what they would have found through what I was talking about was dad's love of Karatha. I mean, it was extreme. My brother Justin used to call him Karatha's cultural attaché. <laughs> he really did love the place. And when, when he was over east, he would tell everybody he ran into, whether it was at a tram stop or on a train or in a restaurant or even anywhere on the street, he would talk about Karatha as the hottest, driest, you know, the best place in the world. So people just look at him like, sorry, what, mate? <laughs> His love for it, I think... They would have liked that. And he also loved the rec club. I mean, and they were very good to him. He had a great sense of belonging. And I love the club for that, for what they gave him really with that. Hmm. The thing about modern life is that grief is really intertwined with bureaucracy. Um, And your dad had been living alone. And so you and your siblings were suddenly in charge of sorting everything out. Where did you start? Well, we started when my father put all his money in property in Karatha. So he had very little super, next to nothing. And he didn't have money anywhere else except for these properties. So we knew that the mining bust had happened and we knew that the the property was worth a lot less than it had been during the boom. But what we didn't realise until we went to the accountants was that he had a massive bank debt. So he had a massive bank debt, you know, hundreds of thousands, but he also had other debts building. The interest and the fees were astronomical on the on the overdraft. So that kept that kept coming. He had to keep paying that off. So he basically was running at a loss for years. So so the properties became money pits. And did you know about you knew that he had was it seven properties there in, in Karatha? Did, yes. Did you know that they were in this kind of financial spiral that, that he was he was in that sort of situation? No, not at all. Uh, we knew that he had lost a lot of money. Um, he, you know, he, he said to me once in the kitchen at my place a year earlier that he had lost millions. And I just responded, well, yeah, sell, Dad, for God's sake, just sell. But he said, no, 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 it's not as easy as that. But my father did have a bit of a pathological, um, he found it very difficult to sell. He, he hung on to everything. He was a bit of a hoarder. So even the houses were included in the hoard. So he did find it very hard to let go of them. But they had become money pits for years. There's only one that wasn't. So it was very it was very stressful to see how bad it had got and how alone he was with all that. He hadn't told anybody, not even his best friend, how bad it had got. It must have been a really overwhelming experience for him, a scary one to have that, that sense of his finances collapsing, I guess, again. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was it would have been terrible. And one of my saddest images is imagining him going into the bank, you know, the back of him going into the bank to get another loan, to pay off a loan that he already sort of 
he'd gone through three months earlier and it, they did, banks just kept lending him the money. So he was in dire situation and he had no way of getting out of it. His age, um, his cognitive skills weren't as good. He was completely overwhelmed and all these places were run down. So there's a lot of maintenance to maintain them. So it was a very, I don't know how he did it. You know, well, he didn't do it. That's the problem. And what state was the paperwork connected to all these properties in? I mean, was that straightforward for you to, to make sense of? No. Well, I, I knew I was the executor and I'd already seen the will and the will was pay all the taxes and debts and then sell and divide the properties four ways. It, was, you know, it sounded so simple. <laughs> but, and I, I rent, so I've never had never had an interest in the real estate world of real estate and mortgages and banks and debts. All of that was just so foreign to me. So I had no idea how much work was ahead of me with all of this. And because there wasn't any money in the estate and because, you know, I, I'm a sole parent who rented, I didn't have access to a lot of money either. So I had to do a lot of the work myself. And my father, for example, he was paying landlord insurance on one property, a, a very ordinary house that he had built in the 80s. And he was paying $1,242 a month in, in insurance. And, and no one up there could understand what was going on. But it was but Dad didn't know he didn't have to pay that. I mean, I rang up that insurance policy, which was connected to the bank that kept giving him the loans. And I had a conversation with someone for about 80 minutes and I got 15000 knocked off the insurance policies. Mm. So my dad didn't know he could do that. And so I really would ask people, make sure you check your parents, elderly parents' situation because it's not their world anymore. My dad still trusted banks. He still believed that the bank, you know, he didn't understand how cynical and greedy banks had got. He still thought they were there to help him. You also had the the house, his house to to sort out, as well as these other properties and whatever various states they were in. What was what was his house like inside? Uh, so when we arrived, my brothers had arrived a day or two earlier, so they had put a path through my father's house because it was just like a hoarder's house. Because my father had all his stuff in there, and he also had all this all the stuff from tenants, itinerant tenants who had shot through. And that's what happened a lot up there is people would just come and go and they would just leave everything. So he would bring it back to his place and not know what to do with it except just hoard it. And then he just could never let go of it. So, yeah, that's the first thing we did when we got there was we got a giant skip organised and we just started to fill it. And then we started to fill the next one and the next one. And so there were four in the end that we did. And the four of us worked beautifully together on that. We threw out nearly everything. We we kept what we wanted, but there was, weren't any fights or anything. It was it was done very well, actually. Um, it, we, had a, we had a short time frame to do it. We only had the week of the four of us being there to do it. So we managed to get, I think it was five tonnes in the end. Were there any personal mementos, any other kind of records that would have been more meaningful to to you as his kids? Yeah, we kept a we kept um, we kept a few things. Um, we kept cowbells and photos. Um, I found on the table of receipts and invoices and bills and and just junk. Really, I found a photo of me when I was eight, and when I was eight, my my maternal grandfather gave me a little sausage dog to replace dad, you know, this <laughs> glorious little dog, Snoopy. And on the back was handwriting saying, I see you everywhere. My 
my sweet Annabelle. And I remember looking at that and then showing it to Amanda. And I said, you know, Dad used to call me Annabelle, but I, I don't, you know, that's not his handwriting. And she took it and she had a look and she said, I remember that photo. It is his handwriting. And that to me was probably the saddest moment for me. Sad in what way? In that he was thinking of you or that you Yeah, that he was thinking of me. Because I guess when I was a little kid, it didn't occur to me that he sort of carried me in his heart over there. So that was the evidence that he did. You know, he did have me in in his thoughts. What song, what was the song that kept you company as you sorted through this chaos of, of your dad's place? Um, when we drove to the cemetery, I had on the on the car CD player, I had just a CD I had found in the house from obviously left by an, uh, a tenant and it was Bruce Springsteen's album and the song that that we had actually just coincidentally had on the car radio as we were going to the cemetery following the hearse was Racing in the Streets. It's a very, it's, it's a song that has a beautiful sort of piano start and after after the funeral, I couldn't be in the car without hearing that song. I, I just had it on high rotation over and over and over. And I found it very, very comforting because I had so much ahead of me. But I, it was like reminding me why I was there and what I had to do and why I had to do it. You know, I had to... I didn't want Dad to die bankrupt again. He, he'd spent 35 years on hot tin roofs and I just didn't want him... Yeah, I just didn't want him to go bankrupt again. How much time were you spending out in Karatha as you were sorting this out? And also, as you say, being a single mum to your son in Melbourne, how how much time were you there back and forth to the Pilbara? Uh, I flew back and forth uh, five times altogether. Um, Each time it was to sort out another couple of properties. Um, We had to clean them. It was also because I didn't have any contact with really with people up there. It was very hard to know who to trust. And so I would go back up there just to sort of, just to pe- give people a face to the voice and to and to the situation, just so I would understand who I was dealing with. Sometimes my brother, Marcus, came with me. He's an incredibly hard worker. So he would do a lot of the physical work and I would go around and meeting the council because I would also have to organise uh, payment plans for uh, strata levies, for council rates, it was just so many things I had to keep sorting out. So I would just go over, yeah, I would go over with my brother and then the last one or two times I went by myself. And you were also, of course, still in the early stages of grief for for the loss of your dad. Would you visit the cemetery when you made those trips? Yeah, I would. I would go each time. Yeah, I went to the cemetery each time and actually that was the time I felt the only comfort really when I was over there because I was with him. And so often in the cemetery, it was a great cemetery. It's a beautiful, in in the morning it would be sort of bright orange and throughout the day and into the evening it would turn into a deep red. It's a beautiful cemetery. And it had a lot of kind of kooky graves. I mean, there was one next to Dad that had a, at the time, had a great big dartboard and another had a guitar (laughs) and another had just the strings of shells over the cross. It was really beautiful. So I would be out there a lot just talking to him and tidying up and tidying up other people's graves. It was always just the two of us out there. But I did get a lot of comfort in doing that, a lot of comfort. And I'd let him know it was okay, you know, Dad, yeah, what have you done? And I would just explain everything that I've done. And really, I was 
very naive about what was always the next step. So I would never know what was coming. So every time I went back to the back to Karatha, I'd go and say, well, you wouldn't believe this, Dad. <laughs> I had to deal with this. I had to do this. <laughs> but I also felt sorry for him. I knew how it was just so big what had to be done and I could absolutely see how it was just beyond his capacity to do it. Did you spend time at the, the rec club yourself when you were out there mopping up after I did. <laughs> I did. It's got a magnificent jute box. Um, I did <laughs> spend time there because I didn't, being in dad's place was depressing. I mean, once all the, everything left the house, it was just, you know, a really neglected place. Everything needed attention. Water would pool under the table. The air con, he didn't have any air con. I mean, this is another thing too. He always used to say a fan was good enough, but it wasn't. Obviously it wasn't. And the house was just in ruin, really. So it was very depressing to be there. So I would always go to the rec club, probably around about the same time Dad would, four o'clock every afternoon. And did you meet people there, like the way your dad was brought into a community there? Did you make connections with, with people you met there? I did. I did. I. It wasn't easy walking into the rec club, actually, because it, it's not my world. You know, I, I don't live in a remote, dry, hot place. I live in I live in Melbourne, inner city Melbourne. So it was a very different world. And at the first one or two times I would go over, I did feel if I walked in there by myself, I was always fine with my brother or a friend, but if I walked in by myself, it did feel a bit wake and fright for me. <laughs> but I think it's because there was so much freedom for me over there too. I was, you know, so much responsibility, sorting out the estate, being a sole parent. So I had a bit of freedom when I went over there. And so I did... I did form some connections with some of some of the single men there who we, I guess they were versions of my father. How did they remind you of him? Well, they were often they were, they were sensitive, emotional, a long way from home, wanting to be part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, heavy-hearted men. I mean, everyone's got this idea that up in the Pilbara that you know they're all just tough blokes. Well, I, I would argue they weren't. <laughs> But in a way I liked, you know, I liked their, they wore their heart on their sleeve and I did have a few, I don't perhaps encounters is not quite the right word, with, with some of the men because I didn't enjoy that. I do enjoy vulnerability in a man. I, I do like it when a man expresses it, even if they struggle to express it. So juggling all of this logistical paperwork and all of the practical cleaning out and sorting out and, and selling of properties, what happened on the third anniversary of, of your dad's death? The final tax bill was paid exactly on the anniversary, the third anniversary on the night so when I paid the last bill and it was all over. And it was all over, so you sorted it all out? I sorted it all out and it... it it was absolutely gruelling on a daily basis for two and a half years, dealing with the bank and insurance companies and super. It was just, it, it was astonishing how difficult the banks made it, frankly. Were you proud of yourself, Annette, once you'd managed to, to wrestle all of that bureaucracy and, and come out clean? I was, yeah, I was happy. I was, I was very, I was very happy that that dad hadn't died bankrupt and that he was able to give his kids a little something. And I know that would have meant a lot to him. So, yeah, I was proud and pleased it was over, so pleased it was over. How much did the gruelling nature of what you had to deal with practically after his death, how much did that affect your grief and the, the experience of loss that you also had? 
Yeah, it was difficult. I mean, I look back and think I just had to keep going. I, I had to get the chaos out of my son's life and my life. So I had to keep pushing through it all. But the grief was always sitting underneath. You know, I, I cried a lot at different situations. I always had to have that song racing in the streets on in the, even in the car in Melbourne. I mean, that went on for about a year or so. I mean, I don't know how people could stand being in the car with me. <laughs> it's a great song. Yeah. Oh, it's a very moving song. And it was comforting. It it was comforting. And I, and I really did need that. So I often would fall back on those little things to get through it. But perhaps I found my father leaving when I was a kid harder, much harder. What do you think your dad would make of the book? Well, he probably wouldn't appreciate me calling him a fool on one of the pages. <laughs> but my brother... My youngest brother said that he thought Dad would be very proud and, and actually I think Dad probably would be. I think he would be. And, and also too, I mean, he gets to have his, <laughs> his name in print. <laughs> he would like that. My dad loved words. He was a cryptic crossword fiend and he just loved words. So he would, he would, li- he would have liked it. Well, Annette, thank you for, for sharing some of the story of, of your dad and you. I really appreciate you being our guest on Conversations. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Annette Trevitt was my guest on Conversations today and her book is called I Had a Father in Karatha. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Attention, passengers. Uh, Hello, Conversations listeners. Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. On our show, we take you on Journeys of the Mind, No passport required. We'll chat with some fine guides in destinations you'd love to travel to. Come travel with us here on Return Ticket. You'll find all the episodes on the ABC Listen app.